You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. We are in the midst, if you haven't been with us, uh, in the midst of a sermon series on work, on how our work relates to the kingdom of God, to God's purposes for us. Pastor John has really initiated this series and I think has done a fabulous job. Isn't he great? Isn't Pastor John awesome? Yes? I have no idea if he's watching right now, but we are very blessed to have Pastor John as our associate pastor. So uh, again, I'm just very grateful for him. And and I, uh, as I said, he's on vacation. I'm getting to step in after he's really set the table for us. And I'd like to just briefly review what we learned through Pastor John in this sermon series uh, to set us up for what we're going to look at today. And, and right from the outset, Pastor John set the table by declaring to us that from the very beginning, the very beginning of creation, work is what humanity was made for. Work is not, as we often position it, some necessary evil or some thing we have to do because, you know, our lot in life is so bad. No, work actually is what we were made for. When God created humanity, he made us in his image. And part of bearing our creator's image means, as we know, reflecting and representing what God is like. And what Pastor John took us through is if we look through the pages of the biblical story from start to finish, we see God working. We see the Lord creating life. We witness God cultivating life. We experience the Lord sharing and extending life both to and through us. Therefore, as God's image bearers, we are called from the very start of human existence to go and do likewise, to work, to create, to cultivate, to build, to labor in ways that offer, that protect, that promote life. The Lord's original design for work was that we as human beings would spend our lives fully aware and living in answer to God's call out of the gifts and resources that he's given us. The whole canvas of creation, you remember this in the Genesis account? The whole canvas of creation was laid out before us both to care for and enhance through productive and fulfilling activity with regular breaks for rest and renewal, Sabbath, all in the celebration of the Lord's blessing all to showcase the glory, the beauty, and majesty of God. However, when, through our rebellion and rejection against God, sin entered the picture, work changed. Work as intended by God, like everything else in this fallen world, became broken. Because of human sin, work is hard, involving sweat, And toil, thorns and thistles, work is stressful and consuming, demanding overtime and increased productivity. But work can be good because, as Pastor John also shared with us, like everything else in all creation, God in Christ came to redeem work. And as we learned, Jesus' redemption of our lives includes the discovery of purpose, of gifts, even the realization of God's calling in the midst of our work. In fact, last week, the light of the gospel was shined by Pastor John on an often believed but totally false myth about work. And what 
he really did so wonderfully is just made it clear for all of us that there is no divide between the sacred and the secular in terms of the jobs we do. And that's so important. When we understand our mutual work as worship, then whatever job we do bears the potential to glorify God. You don't just have to be a pastor. You don't just have to be a missionary or a chaplain. Whatever work we do bears the potential to glorify God when we understand our work as worship. Whether one preaches a sermon, prepares meals, cleans the house, teaches students, cares for sick patients, or closes business deals, our work matters to God and can bring glory to him. Today, with all of that being there, We're going to consider why our work matters to God, how exactly human work glorifies God. In other words, what is the goal of all of our work? Now, Pastor John has hinted at this. He's even pointed to the answer to this question. But this morning, I'm going to answer it for us explicitly. Today, we are going to explore the specific role of our work as God intended. We're going to consider the relationship between God's call upon our lives and our jobs And then we're going to practically look at how our work can and does make a difference in terms of the kingdom of God. And in order to answer this question, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now, one thing you may not know about the letter to the Ephesians is the letter to the Ephesians is distinct from most of Paul's other letters in that rather than focusing on the specific needs of one particular congregation, Paul in this letter offers a broader perspective on the work of God in all creation and in response, our role collectively as humankind, particularly as the body of Christ within that work of God. In the opening of the letter, let me just set the table for you before we dive in. In the opening of this letter, Paul unfolds the first chapter and a half. Paul unfolds the story of God's cosmic work of salvation. And this cosmic work of salvation, as Paul outlines, it begins before the creation of the world, is singularly revealed in Christ's work of redemption through the cross and the resurrection, and continues up to the present moment and beyond through the Holy Spirit's restoration of all creation and life, including ours. And it's with this setup from here, with this picture that Paul paints in the first chapter and a half, that through the rest of the letter, Paul describes how we as humankind, by the grace of God, are drawn into this divine restoration project centered in Christ and carried forward by the Holy Spirit. We are drawn in first as awestruck observers of the drama, but also as active participants in God's redemptive work. Paul expresses it, in fact, this way in chapter 2, verses 8 and 10. The verses are going to be on the screen. Paul writes, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. He goes on. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus. Can you go back, please? Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Notice what Paul declares here. God's redemptive work involves us, you and me, both as recipients of God's grace and as participants in his ongoing work of gracious restoration. Paul makes it clear. You heard this. We are saved by grace because of faith, not because of our works. 
Our relationship with God is based completely on God's work for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. We have nothing to offer God that God did not first provide for us. We cannot pay the Lord back for all the Lord has given to us. We cannot make things square with God in terms of all we wrongfully take away from him through our sin, our rebellion, and our disobedience. Any work we do, no matter how good it is, comes as a result of our dependence, our indebtedness to our creator. So the shorthand way of saying this is God doesn't need our works. And all of our works, as we heard Paul say, don't save us. All of our works don't make us right with God. And yet you heard it right here. Paul asserts, nonetheless, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Work, if you noticed, by the way, God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, we are not saved by works, but we are saved for work. What we do with our lives is to be in response to God's saving work for us. This is, by the way, this idea of our lives You know, how we live our lives, what we do with them are to be in response of God's saving work for us. This is where we get the idea of our work as a calling. In fact, Paul specifically uses this language if you jump ahead to chapter 4, verse 1, when he writes, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, this, this word calling break that down a little bit. You know, today, more traditionally, more formally, whatever we do as our work, we tend to speak of as our vocation. You know, what's your vocation? That's the fancy language, the more formal language. What's your vocation? But historically, vocation referred to this, to this invitation to engage with the world in partnership with God. In fact, the root of the word vocation is the Latin verb voca which means to call. What gets even more fascinating is linguistic evidence indicates that at some point in history, people actually thought of every type of work as a calling. And as it was understood here, Paul says that our work, including our professional lives, our activity in the workplace, whatever jobs we have, be they at home, in the office, or out in the marketplace, all of our work is to be part of God's renewal of creation. That's what Paul has declared here. And that means that every follower of Jesus shares in this calling of doing our part as guided by the word and the spirit to advance this multifaceted mission of God in the world. This call, this calling that Paul speaks of is intended to shape everything we do in life. And that includes our work. Now, the interesting thing is we don't use the word vocation. Often today, what we refer to as our job is what we call our occupation, right? Our occupation. But there's a difference between one's vocation and one's occupation. And that slide kind of breaks it down for you. We all have occupations of some kind. We all have work, everyday work that we do, right? We all have things that occupy our time and our person, whether it's running an office, whether it's selling cars, whether it's caring for a child. We all have jobs to do. And sometimes 
Sometimes our occupation, our everyday work, perfectly lines up with our vocation, answering God's call to impact this world for his kingdom. Sometimes our occupation lines up perfectly with our vocation. But most of the time, and I hope that this gives some of you the ability to breathe, our occupation doesn't line up completely or perfectly with our vocation because most of the time our occupation changes. And especially in these times, we, have, we tend to change our occupations a lot. Today, it is increasingly rare to find one job in one place that you can expect to do for the rest of your life. Economy, uh, companies, economies, technology are constantly changing, as we know. And perhaps even more important than that, our own expectations, our own needs, our own priorities shift over time. So our occupations are always changing. But what Paul says here is despite this, God's call to contribute to his kingdom through our work remains unchanged. So what does that mean? What this means is based upon what Paul has outlined, while our jobs and our roles in life may change, our occupation, whatever it is, whenever it is, still can serve and should serve as a God-given opportunity to fulfill our vocation, to answer that call, to make a difference for the kingdom of God in this world. We can answer God's call through the particular place and situation where we work. As doctors and lawyers, as clerks and waiters, actors and musicians, parents and grandparents, we can lead a life worthy of our calling to Christ and his activity in the world. But if God doesn't need our work, what is the goal of all this work that we're called to do? If our work is intended to glorify the Lord, how exactly, when we perform our jobs, do we undertake, do we make a difference, can we make a difference in terms of the kingdom of God? And what's cool is in Ephesians, in the second half of this letter, Paul reveals the answer to this question. From chapter 4 all the way to the end of the letter, Paul offers several practical exhortations that stress we live out our calling as followers of Jesus through our everyday work in the basic day-to-day -day relationships of our lives. We're going to read just a few excerpts from this part, chapter 4 of the letter. Paul starts right out by saying, hey, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then Paul in verses four through 10 repeats how this kind of work posture that he's just invoked comes out of the work that God has already done for us in Christ. And then in verse 11, he actually calls out some very specific jobs needed within the Christian community, prophets and apostles and teachers and evangelists. But notice in the end of verse 11 what the purpose of all these jobs is, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, I know what some of you are thinking who are a bit more knowledgeable biblically. You think I'm playing a shell game right now. What I mean by that is you're thinking, wait a second, Paul isn't talking about the kind of work we do out there in the world. He's talking here about the work we do in and as a part of the church. Now, while it's true Paul is talking about how we are to be in community together in Christ, 
What I would want to point out to you is the line of separation between the community in the church and the community in the world is a line that we've drawn and underscored underscored in our lives. Paul doesn't make this distinction at all, nor would he. You see, you need to keep in mind, when Paul was writing this letter, households, families, were typically places, not just of family life, but of work. Family members didn't each go out their separate ways like we do today to the office or to wherever it is they're going. Okay, I'll see you later after I get off work. They worked together to support the family business. That's where the the, the idea of that family business comes from because your home was your business. That was your family's business. The means of supporting the family's livelihood and well-being. And most of these families, when you think about when Paul was writing, right? When you think about their family business, most of these family businesses couldn't ship their wares around the world. Right? They couldn't go even sometimes even beyond the border of their own villages or towns. So the family businesses, these family businesses contributed to the local community. And therefore, the local community supported and engaged these family businesses. This line that we draw between home and work was created during the Industrial Revolution. And we've been living segmented, fragmented, compartmentalized lives ever since. But the thing is, Paul and the other New Testament writers never intended for us as the body of Christ to merely become a unit of people who gather once or twice a week to do religious activities together. If Paul were alive standing before you today, he would say, that is not what I meant by the body of Christ. When I meant the church, I didn't assume that you were going to build a building and then once or twice a week you'd show up and go, that's the body of Christ. In fact, if you go back to chapter 2, and I find this fascinating, as Paul elaborates on the work God prepared for us in advance to do, in verse 19, he refers to us as citizens rather than using the religious term worshipers. Isn't that interesting? You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. He doesn't use the religious term worshipers, The insider language, he uses the civic term citizens. And even more fascinating to me is if you step back and look at the practical application part of this letter that I told you about in chapters 4 through 6, Paul, read it, virtually gives no instruction about what the church should do when it gathers together. Instead, he outlines several instructions about how followers of Jesus should work Not just when they're doing church, but in every sphere of life. In fact, if you look carefully as Paul offers these instructions, the specific word he uses to refer to who is the object of all of our work is the word neighbor. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And then three verses verses later, listen to what Paul says in chapter four. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. (laughs) The goal of the work we do, whatever it is, the goal of the work we do, you do, whatever it is, is to serve 
your neighbor. The way to answer God's call to glorify God through our work is by loving our neighbor in how we do our job, whatever that job might be. Because the thing is, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. Martin Luther said that, our own Martin Luther. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And long before Martin Luther said it, Jesus said it first when he answered the question of what the greatest commandment is, the summation of all that God calls us to be and to do. And you know the answer that Jesus gave, to love him, to love God with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And then he weds with that and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love expresses itself in action. What I would ask you to think about this morning in response to what Jesus says is the summation of all that God calls us to be and to do, where and when do you and I wield the most opportunity, the greatest potential to tangibly love our neighbor? Where is it? The answer is where and when we spend the majority of our time and effort in the places and spaces we work for a living. For all the many hours that we spend at work, the people to the right and to the left of us are our neighbors. In the work of the home, if your work is in the home, your neighbors are the people who fill your home. Family members who need constant care and encouragement because of an illness. Children who need to be raised and tended to with unconditional love and wisdom. Friends who come over for dinner and are in need of advice and companionship. If your work is in the work of the marketplace, your neighbors are your customers. But they are also your co-workers, your subordinates and bosses. They're also your suppliers and your competitors. If you work in the government, your neighbors are the residents of the town, the city, the county, or the state you represent, either as an elected official in legislative or judicial office, or as a civil servant, an emergency responder, delivering the mail, working at the DMV. Your neighbor is anyone God places in your path in the midst of the work you are doing, whether it's a paid job or an ongoing regular task we are accomplishing, or even just a short-term project to which we commit ourselves. And Jesus teaches us how we love our neighbors is directly linked to how much we love God. The goal, once again, of all of our work is to serve our neighbor. We glorify God by loving our neighbor through how we do our jobs. But practically, Tangibly, what does this look like? All of you have work of some form or another that you do. What does it look like in the work that you do, that I do? What does it look like to love and serve our neighbor through our work? Well, let's start here. One of the best ways to love your neighbor through your work is by just showing up. Showing up for work every day. And I'm not talking about not calling in sick. (laughs) When I say one of the first ways you can love your neighbor is by just showing up, I'm not just talking about physically showing up, but I mean being actually fully present 
when you work, being mentally, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually engaged as you do your job, being attentive rather than distracted or disinterested, being willing to engage to help rather than to ignore or to deny or just spout the company line. We've all had these experiences at work, right? When we can tell that someone is just occupying a space. They're watching the clock. When do I get off work? Right? They're distracted. They're disengaged. They really have no interest in what you need. In fact, when you need help, their easiest way to shut you down is to simply say, I'm sorry, it's company policy. Or I'm sorry, I can't do that. Because that just shuts it down. Sorry, there's nothing that I can do. But the thing is, the essence of of love, this love that God calls us to, this love that is to be invoked with our neighbor, the essence of love is actually to have true goodwill toward the other person. A loving attitude toward another person is when we want, is when we seek his or her benefit. Love is real when we love others with a love that works for them. Therefore, one of the things it means to love others at work is to have the best interest of those you work with and those you work for at heart, to have their best interests at heart. If you're a teacher, seek the good of your students. If you're a manager, seek the good of your employees. If you're a consultant, seek the good of your clients. If you're a caregiver, seek the good of the one in your care. And if you're in the service industry, seek the good of your customer. Nearly all of us in our jobs have opportunities where we can shirk some of our duties and still get paid. You know what I'm talking about? All of us know what's the job description and what's the job description, right? All of us know in the different things we do, who's watching and who's paying attention. We all have those moments when we know I can do this much and still get paid. I can do this much and still defend the job that I'm doing. It can be all too easy. I know I'm not alone in this, right? And that it can be all too easy to convince ourselves that our work is solely for our benefit. Why do you go to work? Why do you work? Well, because I want to get paid. Why do I go to work? I go to work so I can take care of my financial needs. Why do I go to work? Because I got ambitions. I got things I want to do. It can be all too easy to look at our work as a means to an end, our end, rather than our neighbor's. And what I would ask you to do right now silently, ask yourself, in the wide range of daily choices you have in your work, whatever it is, paid or unpaid, in the wide range of choices you have in the job that you're doing, How much of a role does serving others make in your job decisions compared to making the most for yourself? Jesus calls us not to love ourselves and then to love our neighbor. Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And we love ourselves. We love ourselves only when we make work choices that are solely based, only based on our own self-promotion and advancement. We are loving only ourselves when we make work choices that are about our prestige, our security, our comfort, our care, and that's it. We love others as we love ourselves, on the other hand, 
When we make work choices that promote and advance the well-being of others, particularly the marginalized and the disenfranchised, it's when we advocate through our work for just and fair business standards and practices. It's when we advocate for equal pay and benefits. It's for when we advocate for peaceful means of confrontation and reconciliation. It's when we advocate for the care and protection of the majesty of God's creation. Then we are not just working for ourselves. We are working to love our neighbor even as we love ourselves. And the thing is, guys, it can be so humbling and also so inspiring if we stop and really think about how the jobs we often take for granted give us the opportunity to fulfill the basic needs of another person. When's the last time you stopped and thought about how what you do, the work that you're doing, actually meets the basic needs of another person? Most of us just put our head down and grind, right? But it's, 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 it's amazing when you stop and think about it, these jobs we take for granted, the tremendous opportunity that's there to actually meet the basic needs of another person. For example, consider something really simple. Consider filling a prescription, right? We've all had prescriptions filled at some point in our life. Consider the filling of a prescription. The doctor who writes that prescription, the scientists who developed and tested the effectiveness of that medication, The construction workers who maintain the roads along which that medication traveled. The pharmacist who fills that prescription. The person who stacks the shelves at the pharmacy. The caseworker who processes the insurance claim. All of them play a role in loving their neighbors by delivering necessary health services to them. Right? Think about this. Every time you get into your car or any other moving vehicle, you are relying on the love shown to you by the mechanics who built, maintained, and repaired those vehicles so that they will operate properly, securely, and safely as they race down the street, run along tracks, sail across the waters, or take sky in flight. My friends, farmers, grocers, delivery drivers, baristas, restaurant workers, architects, loan managers, home builders, home insurers, all have a way to love others through their daily work by extending food and shelter, by offering safety and security, by meeting basic human needs and offering connection to meaning greater than themselves simply by doing their job well. And that's the thing, doing their job well. Here's the honest truth. In all of these examples and countless others I could give you, we need to recognize love like that, love like that, through the quality and caliber of work like this, often comes at a price. It means going the extra mile. It means staying past your scheduled shift. It means logging an hour or more of unbillable time. It means doing the right thing without recognition or doing the right thing when everyone else is content to just take a few shortcuts. To love your coworkers, your clients, your customers, those you serve as yourself may require sacrifices that extend beyond your own personal benefit that do not improve your paycheck or enhance your career. Love is real when we love others 
with a love that works for them. And when we answer God's call and take the risk of living and working, not primarily to get what we want or what we can from others, but when we live and work to love and serve others, to provide for the need of others, to love with a love that works for them, we are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus said so himself. Because the thing is, is in following him, Jesus calls us to become a community of believers, not isolated and apart from everything in all the other places of our lives, but rather together, Jesus uses these words, we are to be salt and light in the midst of our day-to-day lives. In this world, as we work and serve alongside those in the office, the warehouse, the classroom, the hospital, the firehouse, the dentist's office, the hair salon, and so on, and so on, and so on. Young or old, weak or strong, successful or unemployed, we are able to fulfill our calling to love our neighbor through our work, wherever it is, in our home, in our local community, or an office building. But the way to begin to do that, the way to begin to love your neighbor through your work, is you have to, in the midst of just having a job, you have to start to discover your calling in the midst of your work. Through prayer and discernment, you need to write what I call a life purpose statement. And if you haven't noticed, inserted into your bulletin is something to guide you through doing that, to writing a life purpose statement. I invite you to just glance at it. This is something for you to take with you. And it's, it's, it's built around this quote from Frederick Buechner, who is a theologian, Christian writer, this quote that I've loved all my life. It's at the top of your page, it's also on the slide. And he says, the place God calls you, if you're asking, and many of you I know in the sermon series, that's kind of what you've stressed about. You're like, I have a job, I want a job, I know about a job, but what do you mean I'm called by God? What is my call? What is, I don't know how to put that together. And this is designed to help you to figure out God's specific call upon your life. And Beekner puts it this way, the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness, your passion, what, what gets you excited, and the world's deepest hunger are met. That's what God's in the business of doing when we talk about redemption and restoration. God takes the passion that he's created you with. God takes the gifts and abilities. God takes what gets you excited that you could talk about forever that you would love to teach others about. God takes that passion, those gifts and abilities he's given you within that passion. And his call is when he fuses that with the place in the world, a community, a person, where there's a great hunger, where there's a, a, a gap There's a need for that passion, for those gifts, those abilities to be poured into. I want to invite you to take time today, this week, to go through this, to reflect on these questions, because they will help you in figuring out the gifts, abilities, and passions the Lord has given you. This will also help you in linking those gifts, abilities, and passions, both with God's will and with tangible opportunities to be greater service to others in need. And the one final thing I want to say before I put this down is don't create this life purpose statement alone. This is not meant to be done by yourself. Invite someone to be a part of this and you be a part of their experience because you're going to need that discernment. You're going to need that, that sounding board, that prayer support. And if you'd like, talk to myself or Pastor John. We would be privileged and honored to talk more about this with you. But in closing, let me say this. We talk about the goal of all of our work. 
to be honest, I, up until really recently, spent most of my adult Christian life wanting to do something big for the Lord. I wanted to make an impact for the kingdom. And if the work wasn't big, then for me, it wasn't changing the world for Christ. It had to be big. It had to be seismic, right? And if it wasn't big, then I wasn't interested in that work because that really wasn't going to change anything. That wasn't going to change the world for Christ. And this is a very recent thing for me, and I would say maybe last five years, which means during my time with you, I've come to realize both how dangerous and how flawed that kind of thinking is. Because here, here's what, I, what I've realized by the grace of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit upon me. In our work, whatever it is, we don't ever change the world for Christ. In our work, whatever it is, we don't ever change the world for Christ. Christ changes the world by changing us. Jesus changes the world through the transformation he brings about in and therefore through us. That means having our work glorify God and further the kingdom isn't about doing something big. It's about Day after day after day, moment by moment by moment, being faithful. Faithful. Faithful to see the neighbors who are right in front of us, rather than looking past them for the bigger person or the bigger crowd we're trying to reach. Faithful to bring and to do our best to love and to serve those within our reach in the midst of our work today, rather than killing time and pining away for the greater work that we're seeking tomorrow. My friends, whatever it is you do, and I've been saying, I'm really beating this one into the pulpit today. Whatever it is you do, selling a mortgage, providing a vaccination, painting a piece of art, digging a ditch or a trench, if you do it as an act of worship to God offered in an expression of love and service to humanity, that is the divine goal. That is the end of our work. And each one of us, every single person in this room has been called to participate in God's work in the world. We've been called to participate in God's work in the world, not to prove ourselves worthy, not to earn a spot in heaven, but rather on behalf of the Lord to reflect the grace of Jesus to another person, to show our neighbors they are worthy of God's love to make tangible for our brothers and sisters around us the reality of God's invitation, of their belonging, of their participation in the life and the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, for the glory of God, by loving your neighbor, go do your job. Amen.